In a culture with a decidedly unbiblical view of marriage and divorce, Jesus' words in Matthew 19, 1-12 may sound extreme. However, since God designed marriage for His glory and for our good, we would be wise to listen to Him. And gratefully, God's grace in the gospel is sufficient for those who have fallen short when it comes to His design for marriage. Welcome to the Radical with David Platt podcast. The latest sermons from teacher, author, and pastor David Platt delivered weekly. And as always, you can find thousands of more gospel-centered resources at our website, Radical.net. But in today's message, David Platt looks at Jesus' teaching on marriage and divorce, as well as Jesus' related comments on discipleship and singleness. As followers of Christ, the entirety of our lives, including our approach to marriage and divorce, is to be lived under His Lordship. So here's David with a sermon titled, Divorce and Discipleship, from Matthew chapter 19. His word, and I hope you do, I invite you to open with me to Matthew chapter 19, and let me invite you to pull out those notes that you received in the worship guide when you came in, notes that I will go ahead and let you know we're not even going to get close to getting through, so unless something different happens than what happened this morning, there's no way we're going to get all the way through Matthew 19 today, this text, this chapter is just loaded with practical application for our lives. Hits on issues, this chapter hits on issues that we could cover for weeks, if not months, that are front and center in our lives, our marriages, our families, and church, and the culture around us. Matthew 19 addresses a divorce. Just about every person in this room has been affected in some way or another by divorce in our lives or our families or among friends or in the church, certainly in the culture. Few things relationally are more painful than divorce and its prevalence in effect on the culture around us cannot be overestimated. So the beginning of this chapter, Jesus addresses divorce. At the end of this chapter, we're going to see Jesus addressing materialism, a huge issue for us in this room. We who are among the richest people ever to walk on planet Earth, we are people engulfed in things, engulfed by the desire for more things, all of us living extremely wealthy lives compared to the rest of the world. So the beginning of Matthew 19, Jesus addresses divorce. End of Matthew 19, Jesus addresses materialism. And if that is not enough for one chapter, as we're going to see this chapter in the very middle touches ever so slightly on, on what happens to children when they die. When people ask me, Pastor, what happens to an infant or a child who dies before they have an ability to grasp the gospel? Matthew 19 is one text among others that I'll point them to. So all that to say, there are just major issues all over this text. And, and we're not going to get to them all tonight. We'll pick up with some next week. In fact, let me go ahead and tell you, even knowing that even spreading it out over the next couple of weeks, we'll still not be able to exhaustively treat all of these things. And so we've put together a page that you can get to from our website. Just go to brookhills.org. And if you want to dive deeper in any of these things, for example, divorce, 
We've got some resources listed there. Got a statement that our elders wrote a few years ago on divorce with commonly asked questions from that. And, and then other resources that can, you can go deeper into on divorce when it comes to children and salvation, especially infants who, who die before an ability to grasp the gospel. I wrote something a few years ago on that. So we put that up there on the website. And then and there's a few different links to sermons and study on the gospel and materialism based on the Jesus conversation with the rich young man, which is the passage here in Matthew chapter 19. So anyway, those resources are there if you want to dive in deeper. But tonight, as we read through the text, my goal is is to show you how the gospel comes to bear on each one of these issues and how the gospel uniquely helps us to understand each one of these issues. So we're going to start with Matthew 19, 1 through 12, and I got a feeling that's as far as we're going to get. But I want us to read this, and I want us to pray, even as we talk about divorce here. I know that there are a variety of different circumstances represented around this room tonight. Some of you who have walked through divorce, some of you who could be walking through divorce right now, Some of you who have experienced as a child the pain of divorce. Some of you who have close friends who are walking through divorce. Just so many different circumstances. I just want to pray that God would take his word, his truth, and by his spirit, just supernaturally, gently, pointedly apply it to to your heart and circumstances where you may find yourself now or in the the days to come. And, And don't think, well, You know, I'm not even married. I don't have to worry about divorce. These are bedrock truths about marriage and divorce that must be instilled in our hearts before we get married. And so so if you're single, listen extra close in a sense tonight. Matthew chapter 19, verse 1. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. Let's pray. Father, we come to this text tonight as people in need. 
knowing that there are brothers and sisters among us who have walked through divorce, who may be considering divorce, brothers and sisters among us who have felt the effects of divorce in different ways in our lives and our families. So we, we do pray amidst a culture that is so confused about marriage. And amidst a church that has so missed your design for marriage, help us, we pray, to hear your word humbly tonight to respond appropriately in every one of our lives and every one of the circumstances that we represent tonight. By your grace, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. The gospel and divorce, an issue that we must address with care in church and with confidence in our culture. Few times in history, Has it been so easy to leave one's commitment to marriage? All you need today is a statement, simple statement, irreconcilable differences. You can fill out divorce application online, cheaply, quickly, without even leaving your computer. And far too often, we are ignoring this issue in the church. We try to insulate ourselves. We isolate one another. We struggle to know how to walk alongside brothers and sisters who are considering divorce, who have been divorced. And as a result, Christians often find, oftentimes go running to courts to address marital conflict that should be addressed in the church. If a Christian today is contemplating divorce, first person they often contact is a divorce lawyer, which then leads to divorce court. And I'm not advocating civil disobedience in in these cases, but based on 1 Corinthians 5, 1 Corinthians 6, if any of you has a dispute with one another, dare he take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the saints? One brother goes to law against another and this in front of unbelievers? Matthew 18, which we looked at last week, disputes between Christian husbands, Christian wives, Christian wives are intended to be addressed in the church with each other in the body. We share life with each other. And among married couples, this inevitably involves sharing marital struggles with one another. An authentic biblical community is designed by God to nurture all sorts of conflict in our lives, including marital conflict. Yet one more reason why we urge every member of this body to be involved in a small group where we can walk together honestly, biblically, compassionately through inevitable conflict that will come in our lives and our marriages and our families. So for far too often, we as a church have sat back, abdicated our biblical responsibilities, watched the state take over the institution of marriage in such a way that the church is hardly involved at all. That is wrong, and it desperately needs to change. Now, don't don't get me wrong. I have great respect. I thank God for men and women who work in the legal profession, who work as lawyers, judges. But the reality is we should not let lawyers or judges determine the fate of our families when that kind of conflict can and should be handled in the church. 1 Corinthians 6, don't take a Christian brother or sister to court like that. It discredits the testimony of the church and disgraces the name of Christ. What are we saying to an increasingly secular court system when half of the divorce cases they are dealing with involve two supposed Christians? 
the same time, side note here, I do thank God for those who serve in law, court system. However, in a day where some lawyers are making it as simple as possible to get a divorce, I would urge any person involved in building their career on making divorce cheap and easy to repent and seek forgiveness from God for scorning his design for the glory of Christ in marriage. So how does the gospel then relate to marriage and divorce? What does the Bible teach about divorce and how should we address divorce in the church? And when it comes to how the church should address divorce in the church, two things come to mind. They're not in your notes here. It's probably why I didn't get through this morning because I was adding things to the notes as if they needed to be added to. But two things I would put before you that we need to do in the church. On one hand, when it comes to divorce, we as the church need to comfort one another with love. Divorce, such a wounding process, brings about such relational hurt that warrants comforting love in the church. We are called to come alongside divorced persons, help them find joy and forgiveness and strength and healing in Christ. God calls us as the church to come alongside children of divorce. God calls us to come alongside one another in marital, marital difficulties so that when a brother or sister is considering divorce, they're not isolated or ignored in the church. Instead, we're, we're walking with them, we're weeping with them, we're praying with them, we're pointing them to the presence of God and the word of God. So we comfort one another with love in the middle of painful circumstances, painful memories. At the same time we comfort one another with love, second thing we do is we confront one another with truth. So we want to be careful to comfort, but we don't want to comfort with falsehood. That would be no comfort at all. We don't want to just say what feels best in divorce situations or maybe twist scripture to make it fit what a struggling husband or a struggling wife wants to hear. That is unloving and deceptive. And it may seem like it has benefits in the short term, but that has disastrous effects in the long term. We have a responsibility in love to communicate to each other what Scripture says about divorce, which may be the more difficult path in the short term, but in the long term will have great God-glorifying fruit in our lives, our families, and the church for generations. So comfort one another with love. We confront one another with truth. I pray that both will be evident in this faith family in the church of Brook Hills when it comes to divorce. We are a community of faith. And when a couple in this community is contemplating divorce, cannot isolate them, ignore their struggles. We are members of one body that we might love each other, care for each other, support each other, which involves loving each other in the middle of marriages, caring for each other's marriages, supporting each other's marriages, comforting with love, confronting with truth, both. So with that set up, I pray in a spirit of comfort and love and mercy, let's look at truth from scripture about divorce. Four truths based on Matthew chapter 19, as well as some miscellaneous other teachings in Scripture on divorce. Number one, God created marriage. So here we're starting where Jesus started. God created marriage. Jesus begins to talk about divorce in verse 4, saying, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? 
and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father. He's quoting here from Genesis 2 into Genesis 2. Shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. So Jesus says very clearly here, very basically, very clearly, marriage is defined by God. God authored marriage. God designed marriage. Therefore, God defines marriage. Marriage is defined by God. A huge issue, by the way, in our culture today that is seeking to redefine what only God has the prerogative to divine. Do not have the right or prerogative to redefine marriage. God defines marriage. It's the one flesh union, Genesis 2, 24, a man and a woman, wholehearted, mutual, lifelong, clinging to one another. And Jesus says, what God has joined together, let not man separate. In other words, only God can make marriage and only God can break marriage. One, one author put it this way, if marriage were of human origin, then human beings would have a right to set it aside. But since God instituted marriage, only he has the right to do so. Marriage is an institution, which includes individual marriages, of course, is subject to the rules and regulations set down by God. Individuals may marry, be divorced, and be remarried only if, when, and how God says they may without sinning. The state has been given the task of keeping orderly records, but it has no right or competence to determine the rules for marriage and for divorce. That prerogative is God's. And it's not just that the state lacks the right and competence to define marriage. We all lack the right and the competence to define rules for marriage and divorce. And this must be the starting point for any discussion on divorce. We must be willing to submit our minds, our lives, our church, our families, our marriages to God's word on marriage and divorce. Not taking it, trying to twist it to fit our our hopes or what we would like for it to look like. No, we submit to, to what he says because he defines marriage. Marriage is defined by God and second, marriage is a covenant under God, a covenant between a man and a woman that is a reflection of God's own covenant-keeping nature. Marriage is a demonstration to the world of Christ's covenant with his people. That's the whole point of what Paul's saying in Ephesians 5, 22-33, when he points back to Genesis 2 and he says, from the very beginning, when God designed marriage, God designed it, man and woman coming together. God created this whole picture, man and woman coming together in a one flesh union, Genesis 2. The whole purpose there, Paul says in Ephesians 5, was so that the world would have a picture of God's love for his people through Christ's love for the church. That's the design of marriage. It's a picture of his covenant love toward his people. That's the purpose of marriage. So get this. If marriage is designed by God to mirror Christ's love for us, the design of marriage is to mirror the love of Christ for us, then as long as Christ is faithful to his bride, husbands must be faithful to their wives. Mirror reflection. On the day when Christ decides to discard his church, husbands can decide to divorce their wives. But it's not happening. That's the whole point. This is huge. Feel the weight of this. You know, in, in just a few minutes, we're going we're gonna to send out about 35 different 
brothers and sisters from our faith family to go literally around the world over the next couple of months, next couple of years in different places and mission. That's what we're going to do at the end of our worship gathering. It's going to, for, for some, it'll feel like a hard left turn. Like, okay, divorce and now missions. But I want you to see the connection between what we're talking about and mission the nations. See the connection here. God has designed marriage to be a clear reflection of his love, his grace, and his mercy to the nations, to the world. That's the picture that he's designed for marriage. So if we want, as a church, to be about declaring the glory of God to the ends of the earth, one of the things that must necessarily involve is healthy marriages that display Christ's love for his church. So if we're passionate about mission, we're passionate about healthy marriages. Go together. If we, if we want the glory of Christ known among every people group on the planet, and marriage is a picture of the glory of Christ's love for his church, then we see the connection between the two. Marriage is a covenant under God designed to display the glory of Christ's love for his people. It's extremely serious. So what God has joined together, what he's defined was a covenant under his design, let not man separate. Which leads to the second truth. God hates divorce. God hates divorce. Now I'm using language here that is echoed in the book of the Bible right before Matthew, Malachi, chapter two, verse 16. Malachi 2, 16, the Lord, the God of Israel says that he hates divorce. And it makes sense that if God created marriage to be the union of a man and a woman, then divorce is fundamentally at odds with his purpose in creation, which is what leads to this question the Pharisees ask in verse 7. They point back to Moses, referring here to Deuteronomy chapter 24, way back in the Old Testament, where Moses made allowances, where the law of God through Moses made allowances for divorce. They say, well, why did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and then send her away? Why did Moses allow for that? And Jesus' response was, because of the hardness of your heart. In other words, divorce came as a result of hard hearts, as a result of sin. So follow this. The point here is clear. Divorce is always a result of sin. Sin is what causes divorce every time. Sin causes divorce. Remember, don't forget that marriage is the uniting of two dreadful sinners together. So just remember that. Next time you're at a wedding, see all the beauty bride and groom, just realize this is two dreadful sinners combining together now. Both, both dreadful sinners prone to wander from the Lord, prone to wander from each other. This is, this is key. In almost any marital conflict, Obviously, there's always two sides to a story in marital conflict, particularly when it gets to a point of divorce. Now, many times, there will be one side that is more clearly at fault than the other. But the fact always remains, both are sinners. And divorce is always a result of sin in a husband and a wife, a wife and a husband. Divorce is always a result of sin, and divorce is almost always sinful. Not always, so the key word there is almost, because as we're about to see, 
which seem to be allowances for divorce in narrow circumstances, according to Deuteronomy 24 in the Old Testament and Matthew 19 here, and we're going to mention 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And in these cases, divorce is not necessarily sinful, but these cases are extremely limited. And outside of these exceptions, all other divorces are sinful, disobedient, dishonoring to God. So the overarching truth here is clear. God hates divorce and he hates the sin that causes it. And as a result of sin, third truth, God regulates divorce. Meaning, God in Deuteronomy 24, Matthew 19, 1 Corinthians 7, makes allowances here, acknowledging the reality of divorce and giving regulations for addressing divorce. Regulations, not suggestions. This is not God giving us truths that we can add to or take away from as pastors, counselors, lawyers, anybody else in the 21st century. God is saying these are the only biblical grounds for divorce. And even these grounds we're about to talk about, there's debate among Bible-believing preachers, pastors, scholars about whether or not these, these are grounds in themselves that make divorce possible before God, that God is sanctioning divorce in these circumstances. There are pastors who I respect deeply who would not even go as far as I and our elders have gone on this. I want to put that out there. One of the resources I put online was, a, uh, there's, there's two books on there, a four views book and a three views book on divorce and remarriage. And, and there's, there's varying views among evangelical pastors, gospel believing, Bible preaching, pastors, preachers, scholars on these issues. But after studying the word, scripture seems to point here, and this would be, I would say, I don't want to say this is probably the majority of you because it's my view, but I, I, there's, there's, there's good company on this view. I'll just put it that way. Scripture seems to point to two potential grounds for divorce, one here in Matthew 19 and the other in 1 Corinthians 7. And the one here in Matthew 19 is reflected in Matthew 5, 32. So in Matthew 19, we've got this conversation with these Pharisees. I mentioned earlier the quote from Deuteronomy 24, the Pharisees put before Jesus. They're trying to trap him because there were two different schools of thought, a little background here, two different schools of thought in first century Judaism about divorce and reasons or justifications for divorce. One school of thought said that you can only divorce your wife if she has committed some type of immodest behavior or sexual immorality. So that would be the only exception. And in that exception, you should divorce. The other school of thought, which is in the more dominant school of thought, interpreted Deuteronomy 24 much more broadly, saying that divorce was possible whenever a wife did anything displeasing to her husband, which basically led to men divorcing their wives for just about any reason they could think of, come up with. So that's what these Pharisees have in the back of their minds. And they say, well, what, what do you think? And Jesus says to them, I say to you, verse 9, Whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And in one sweeping statement, Jesus clearly narrows the allowance for divorce. And he offers one ground here in Matthew 19. At the most, one ground. And that ground is adultery. Now there's some debate even about this because the word for sexual immorality here is porneia, which is a word that's used all throughout the New Testament to refer generally to sexual sin. But in the context of this passage where Jesus has just referred to this one flesh union, 
In marriage, the picture seems to be of a spouse who violates that one flesh union. And that, Jesus says, is an extremely serious violation. Not only against the spouse, but adultery is an extremely serious violation against God. So Old Testament background here, do you remember, you know, what the penalty for adultery was in the Old Testament? It was death. Deuteronomy 22, 22. If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die. Both must be put to death, Leviticus 20.10 says. Proverbs 6.32, he who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does this destroys himself. So I want to pause here. I want to pause here because I am pretty sure there are men and women in this room tonight who have thought about adultery, who have considered, even recently maybe, considered adultery, who are considering adultery. There are men and women in this room, I'm pretty sure, who are stepping an inch toward adultery maybe on the verge of adultery and maybe even men and women in this room who are at this moment involved in an adulterous relationship. And I would point out here that this is not just for those who are married. To be giving yourself in one flesh union to someone who is not your wife or your husband So, single men and women, married men and women across the board, thinking toward this, taking a small step toward this, living in this. Hear Proverbs 7 tonight. Describing a man wandering after a woman who is not his wife. With much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once, he follows her. Listen to the imagery as an ox goes to the slaughter. Or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver. As a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. Sons, listen to me and be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. For many a victim she has laid low, and all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol. Her house is the way to hell, going down to the chambers of death. 
Do not be deceived, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10 pleads. Adulterers will not inherit the kingdom of God. They won't inherit the kingdom of God. Hebrews 13, 4, mark it down. God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterers. Revelation 21, 8, the sexually immoral. So anybody playing with sexual immorality, anyway, the sexual immoral, their eternal portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur. So if you are, if you are toying, thinking, desiring, moving in any way toward anything but absolute, total, Devotion, physically, emotionally, sexually to one man, one woman who is your wife or your husband. There's anything, then run from that tonight. Hear God's gracious warning for you to run from that. Lest you miss the kingdom of God. Men, don't toy with it. You're an ox going to slaughter. Women, don't play with that. Like a stag caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver. Adultery is extremely serious offense against God and against his spouse. And lest anybody think, well, I'm glad I'm free from that. Lest I think, well, I'm glad I'm not there. Take heed lest you fall. Divorce. One ground in Matthew 19, the severity of adultery. But notice this. Okay, now notice this. Notice that Jesus doesn't say that divorce in such circumstances is certain or required. Instead, Jesus says divorce is possible in this situation. It's possible. You may think, well, sounds like then Jesus is lining up with that first school of thought in Judaism. But no, first school of thought in Judaism would have said, yes, if there's been sexual immorality, then divorce should happen. But this is where I want you to see the radical implications of the gospel for divorce in Scripture. Jesus is approaching divorce here in a redemptive manner with a totally different perspective from these Pharisees. They are, these Pharisees are looking for circumstances that would make it possible for them to divorce. And Jesus is saying in response to that, we are not looking for reasons to divorce. The goal is not to look at the letter of the law for a loophole that allows divorce. We can't look at God's word that way. When it comes to God's word, we're not looking for reasons. We're not looking for justifications to divorce. How do I get out of this? That misses the whole point. Instead, we're longing for reconciliation to occur. To occur. Remember that this this picture of divorce and Jesus' teaching here in Matthew 19 comes right on the heels of Matthew chapter 18, where we saw last week Jesus taught his disciples, parable of the unmerciful servant. He taught his disciples that they should forgive, are compelled to forgive extravagantly. And the implication is clear. We work, we pray, we long toward reconciliation, restoration, redemption, not because it's easy, but because Christ is in us. I thank God. I have pictures in my mind of brothers and sisters in this faith family. Praise God for the grace he gave to various couples all across this church who have walked through adultery and come out on the other side reconciled and restored by the mercy of God. I was talking with one brother this morning who came up to me after the sermon. And he he told me, 
He said, I, I'm celebrating 52 years of marriage this year, minus one. I said, what do you mean, 52 minus one? Why don't you just say 51? He said, well, no, 19 years into marriage. He said, I divorced my wife. And during that year, I realized that I had not worked like I needed to toward reconciliation. And so he said, I worked by God's grace toward reconciliation. We reconciled, we got married a year later. Now, 52 years after we were first married, I love her more than I've ever loved her before. With tears in his eyes, he just said, Pastor, tell people to work for reconciliation. Not because it's easy. I can only imagine some of you in the circumstances you find yourselves in marriage right now thinking, ah, like it's easy for you to say. I'm not saying it's easy. By the grace of Christ in you, that's the whole picture. We're longing for reconciliation to occur. So one ground for divorce in Matthew 19, adultery. Divorce is possible in this situation, but not inevitable because of the gospel. Then, I wanted to put this in your notes, remind you of this, even though it doesn't deal directly with Matthew 19, but Scripture does seem to point us also to one ground for divorce in 1 Corinthians 7, which is abandonment. So Paul, 1 Corinthians 7, he's referring to what Jesus has taught about marriage. And then he begins to talk about marriage between a believer and an unbeliever, which was a huge issue there at Corinth. All these people coming to Christ, but they're... Spouse is not saved. And this is what he says. I'll read from 1 Corinthians 7. If any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. So in other words, a believing spouse should not initiate divorce with an unbelieving spouse. They should stay married and pray. The believing spouse should pray and work and love toward that unbelieving spouse's salvation. Again, I got pictures of brothers and sisters in my mind, even now, who, who I know. They're members of this church. Their spouses are not saved. And they're praying and longing and working and loving toward the end that their spouses would be saved. It's not easy for those brothers and sisters some of the circumstances they find themselves in, but they're doing this. But, Paul continues, if the unbelieving partner separated, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. In other words, if an unbelieving spouse chooses to abandon a believing spouse, despite that believing spouse's love toward them, then divorce is preferable in this situation. Let it be so, Paul says. So the reason I use preferable there is Paul says, okay, you don't initiate that kind of divorce, but if it is forced upon you by abandonment from an unbelieving spouse, then do not war against that. Let it be so. Let it, let it be so. Divorce is preferable in this situation. So two narrow biblical grounds for divorce at most. Again, there's some who would not even go this far. Adultery and abandonment. Now, there's obviously things that are not mentioned here, which has caused some to conclude that the Bible's teaching here is impractical or unnecessarily, impractically narrow. But we know, brothers and sisters, we know that God is wise, that God is not in heaven thinking, oh, 
I just thought about what they would be facing in 21st century America, I would have dealt more thoroughly with this issue. God has spoken. And doubtless there are all kinds of other struggles that marriages will encounter. Serious struggles from neglect to abuse and everything between. And it's not, it's not that God just leaves us alone then to fend for ourselves in those matters. He gives us his word and he gives us the church. He's given us church discipline, church restoration to be the means by which we walk through difficult issues and sin and husbands and wives together on various levels. And if a brother or sister, a husband or wife continues to sin against his or her spouse, then we must, with the gospel, address that brother or sister in love and in care, address that seriously. Remember the whole manual on church discipline we've talked about from the second century that says, if there's a man who's abusing his wife in the church, the pastor should take two stout elders and visit that home. So yes, we address these things seriously together. So again, goes back to last week, see the importance of church membership here. We're not just sitting next to people in a service. There's so much more going on here. We're sharing life with each other. So again, we encourage every member of this body to be involved in some small group of relationships where others are looking out for you, caring for you, supporting you, including looking out for your marriage, caring for your marriage, supporting each other's marriage. It's one of the things that burdens me right now. And it goes back to what we were talking about last week when it comes to caring for every individual member of the church. Because right now, it's so easy for people to slip through the cracks for a man or woman to be a member of this church be unconnected, disconnected from community, and for that man or woman to then wander away from their spouse. No, we need brothers and sisters surrounding every single marriage in this body. I want brothers and sisters surrounding my marriage in this body, watching out for my marriage, guarding the sanctity and the joy and the covenant of marriage that I know, we know, is so precious to God and so good for us and glorifying to Christ. We need this. We walk through this together. But the Bible gives these two exceptions for divorce. And any divorce outside of these grounds, God's word teaches, leads to adultery and remarriage. So this next is an implication here. An implication, again, that some would not go to. Some do go to, including myself. And it's what our elders came to a few years ago. But some would not even go this far. That remarriage is biblically permissible only for the offended spouse after a biblical divorce. So again, there are some Bible-believing pastors, scholars, preachers who would say that remarriage is not even permissible then. But it seems that Scripture is at least implying that remarriage is permissible when divorce is permissible. So practically speaking, the non-adulterous spouse in the first exception for divorce and the Christian spouse in the second exception for divorce can remarry according to these passages. And outside of that, If a man or a woman divorces his or her spouse without biblical grounds for divorce, then he or she is not free to remarry. That remarriage, such remarriage, would be adulterous. I know that that hits heavy for many men and women who have walked through divorce. I know brothers and sisters among us who find themselves in that situation. The Bible's clear. At the most, only people who have come out of biblical divorce can biblically 
remarry, with widows or widowers, of course, being the exception to that. So God created marriage. God hates divorce and God regulates divorce. And ultimately, fourth truth, God redeems divorce. He redeems divorce. So I realize that this entire subject brings up old wounds to the surface, brings up new wounds and breaks them open. And I realize that these are, there are tough words here in Scripture for some to hear. But I want us to see why God addresses divorce so seriously in his word. So follow this. It's key. The reason God is so serious in his word about our marriage covenants with each other is because God is so serious about his marriage covenant with us. The reason God is so serious about our marriage covenants with each other is precisely because he is so serious about his marriage covenant with us. This is where I want to remind you then, particularly those of you who have experienced divorce, those of you who have gone through the pain of divorce for biblical reasons, but those of you who have gone through the pain of divorce for unbiblical reasons, know this, Christian, you are a part of the body and the bride of Christ, men and women, his body and his bride. And I want to remind you that Jesus is always forgiving and Jesus is always faithful. That he's always forgiving. By no means is divorce an unforgivable, unpardonable sin. If you have sinned against God in divorce, know know that Jesus is always forgiving. Even if the marriage covenant in your life was broken in the past, know this, the ultimate marriage covenant is still intact. He's always forgiving. He's always faithful. So, oh, hurting brothers and sisters, when you hear these words, if you're hurt, gaze upon the God. Gaze upon the God who picks you up where you are, not where you wish you were, not where you'd like to be, not where you think you should have wanted to end up. He picks you up right where you are daily. He picks you up right where you are, and he carries on his covenant of love with you. He will never commit adultery against you, and he will never abandon you. No matter what happens in this world, Jesus never forsakes his bride. Never. So hear this. Regardless of whether you've been married one time or you've been married 50 times, as a follower of Christ, the reality is you are his bride forever. Forever and ever and ever. That's the gospel. Now, I realize that in saying that, I run the risk of some people who may be contemplating divorce thinking, well, then, Okay, I'll divorce, even if it's on unbiblical grounds, and then God will forgive me, which is a thought process that completely misses the point of the gospel and is dishonoring and totally disobedient to God. But I'm willing to take that risk in order to say to divorced brothers and sisters, you have an eternal Savior who is gracious and merciful, who is committed to sustaining and strengthening and satisfying you forever and ever and ever, no matter what your past looks like. So practically, how does this play out? 
Here's, here's encouragement. Just to, again, there's all kinds of different ways that this, this text might land on people's lives tonight. But here's some, some categories, so to speak, for potential application based on Matthew 19. One, if you are single, this is where Jesus ends in Matthew 19, 11, 12. If you're single, maximize your singleness to advance the gospel. So it's interesting, in both Matthew 19 and in 1 Corinthians 7, we see Jesus and Paul commending singleness for the spread of God's kingdom. That's what, when Jesus talks about eunuchs, he's talking about those who are remaining single, not married, for the spread of the kingdom. So Jesus says here, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, it's not that marriage is bad, but marriage is not best for all people. Now we live in a society today that says you have to be married in order to live a complete and full life. But that is not true. Jesus was the most complete man, the most fully human person who ever lived, and he was not married. So many of the heroes in the New Testament, church history, were not married. So if you are single, one takeaway from Matthew 19 is to maximize your singleness for the advancement of God's kingdom. And then, I didn't put in your notes there, but obviously, if the Lord does lead you into marriage in the days to come, let these truths be hidden in your heart from the very beginning. That God created marriage, God defines it. It's a covenant that he has defined. It's a reflection of his character, that he hates divorce. So work, guard. You might be thinking, oh, this is so far removed from me. Just want to date, much less get married. But hear this. Divorce may seem very far removed from you now, but Guard your heart. Be pure and holy and trust Christ now in a way that will bear fruit in potential future marriage. As you're single, this moment, maximize your singleness to advance the gospel. At the same time, if you are married, love your spouse in a way that portrays the gospel. So uh, married men and women, let Matthew 19 tonight drive you as a husband or wife to love your spouse well. Husbands, love your wives with sacrificial love. Take responsibility for the glory of Christ being put on display in your marriage. And when you go to dinner tonight, or if you want to wait until you get home and lay your head on the pillow tonight, ask your wife how you can love her better. Listen. No matter no matter how long her response takes, you listen, take notes. Write it down. You'll forget it. How can, you, how can you love your wife better? How can you ask her, how can I serve you better? Christ called me to lay down my life for you. How can I do that better? And wives, respect your husbands. Honor Christ through your gracious support of his leadership. So I feel really uncomfortable in any position where I find myself giving counsel to wives. But, but ask your husbands how you can better respect him. How you can better support him, love him in the way the church loves Christ, to be a reflection of this covenant, keeping God. May Matthew 19 tonight drive us to healthier marriage in Christ to your husband or your wife. Third, if you are married and considering divorce, 
I urge you tonight to remember the preciousness and the power of the gospel. So if you are considering divorcing your husband or your wife, let me ask you first, do you have biblical grounds for divorce? And if you don't, then remember the preciousness and power of the gospel. Christ's covenant is precious. And the power of the gospel can change even the hardest of hearts, the hardest of a husband's heart, hardest wife's heart. The gospel has the power to transform. So don't give up on the gospel. Do not walk in disobedience to God into divorce that is sinful before him. On the other hand, if you do have biblical grounds for divorce, I'd still encourage you, even as you consider that possibility of divorce possible in these situations, remember the preciousness and the power of the gospel. Work, pray, love with a view toward reconciliation. Preciousness, power of the gospel. Work, pray, love toward that end, not by your own strength, but by the strength of Christ in you. Not with your own patience, but with the patience of Christ in you. Not because your husband or wife deserves this kind of love, but because you have received the most undeserved kind of love from God in Christ. If you're considering divorce, remember the preciousness and power of the gospel. Fourth, if you're divorced for a biblical reason and single, rest in the gospel, in your singleness or possibly in a future marriage. So if you were divorced on biblical grounds, i.e. if you were the non-adulterous spouse in the first exception or the believing spouse in the second exception, then let this... Text encourage you, first and foremost, to rest in the singleness that God has given you at this time. And if God continues to grant you singleness by the power of the gospel, rejoice in that. Rejoice in that. And again, some would say there's not even exception here that would lead to remarriage, but as we've talked about, it seems to be the implication. So if God does lead you to remarry, then display the love of Christ by the power of the gospel in your remarriage. I would add there, Though there's so much here. And again, that's why I put this statement from the elders on the, online because we unpack some of these different things. But, but if, if your spouse that abandoned you or committed adultery against you, that, is, you, that divorced you because of these reasons, if they're not remarried, then, then pray toward the potential of working even now after months, years toward reconciliation and restoration. Fifth, if you're divorced for an unbiblical reason and single, repent and rely on the gospel to glorify God in your singleness. Repent of your sin to both God and to your former spouse if you divorce for an unbiblical reason. Then let the gospel of Christ give you great hope for a life that thrives in the advancement of the gospel as a single while you Wait, the ultimate wedding where we will join together with Jesus for all of eternity. Again, don't think, well, okay, now if I'm confined to singleness, then I'm confined to an unfulfilled life. That is not true. Look at Jesus. That is not true. So repent and rely on the gospel to glorify God in your singleness. I think about the pictures of brothers and sisters in my mind here who, who divorced their spouse for unbiblical reasons who would have a desire to be married, but resting in the gospel 
relying on the gospel in their lives and trusting Christ and not moving forward with any kind of marriage, remarriage. Finally, if you are divorced for an unbiblical reason and married, repent and reflect the gospel in your current marriage. So maybe you divorced for unbiblical reasons. Scripture encourages you, just like we've talked about, to repent genuinely before God and before your former spouse. Repent. However, Scripture does not anywhere indicate that you should break another covenant of marriage by divorcing again. Instead, Scripture encourages you to focus on magnifying Christ and the marriage you have now by the power of the gospel. I think of, oh, again, I've got, I know brothers and sisters, I think of one couple who's been married for 30 plus years and if you were to ask him about his first marriage when he was very young, it didn't last very long, divorced for unbiblical reasons, he would say even now after 30 years of loving, fruitful marriage, he would look back and with tears in his eyes, he would tell you, I, I sinned against God in divorcing my wife then. And if I had to do it all over again, I would, I would not do what I've done. He's repented to his former spouse, repented before God. Does that mean he needs to now divorce his wife now? No. He's magnifying Christ in his marriage now. Now again, there's risk there. Some people will say, well, okay, well, I'm just gonna get remarried and then God will forgive me. Don't miss the point of the gospel here. We can trust God with our salvation. Therefore, we can trust his word when it comes to marriage and divorce. So I know this text has hit on, it just comes down in a thousand different ways in this room. Maybe even literally, just a thousand different ways. I don't know how this text sinks into where you are right now, but I, I want to I say this. All a thousand of us are sinners before a holy God. And the Bible describes sin all throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Bible describes sin as adultery. Idolatry is adultery. Immorality is adultery. We run from the God who loves us. We run after other lovers instead. Things, stuff of this world, ourselves, all of this is the condition of our hearts, the sinful condition of our hearts. We are unfaithful spouses. That's the, in a sense a picture of the essence of sin. And God, in his mercy, has sent his son. He is a faithful husband. He has sent his son to pay the price for our sin, to suffer the separation we are due, to bridge the chasm, the infinite chasm that has been created by our sinfulness against God, our unfaithfulness to God. Christ has paid the price for it all and made it possible for you and I to be reconciled to God, an intimate relationship with God free from sin, free from any shame in the past, not held accountable for any sin in the past, righteous before God, reconciled to him. And that is the greatest news in the world. 